Hello, it is 18th of March 2018, and this is episode 62 of Scavengers Horde, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. We're here to deliver a regular rundown of Star Wars news, analysis, and commentary, with a focus on the sequel trilogy and the future of the saga. And today, we have a very, very special guest called Christy. And she is here to talk about Star Wars music with us. So would you like to introduce yourself, Christy? Hello. Yes, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Um, you guys know I'm a huge fan of the podcast. I've listened to every episode. Um, and I, I'm on Tumblr, Enjoy All, Need Nothing, um, which is really funny. I started my Tumblr in 2009, and I can't even remember why I chose that name or what it comes from, but <laughs> it was something meaningful to me then. Um, and I'm a composer, and I work in Hollywood on very small budget things, but really a big John Williams fangirl, big Star Wars nut, and um, just love to talk about all things about the music of Star Wars and yeah really excited to do that today yeah we're really happy to have you on and it's going to be pretty fabulous and I believe you're also something of a legend in Star Wars fandom Christy because you spoke to Ryan Johnson and you asked him a question didn't you Yes, that was, uh, I I earned, I don't like to say one, I know I earned a spot at the Collider IMAX Q&A because they did vet the people who applied. Um, and I did send them some of my Tumblr essays to prove myself. So, uh, but when I, when I got, before I went there, I was, you know, I wanted, obviously wanted to ask a music question, but ultimately decided that Raylo was far more important. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, talked with my with friends on Tumblr and in our Facebook chat, and uh, someone suggested an amazing question, Gray Force user. And I tried to phrase it in such a way that he would be able to answer without answering. And he actually, he didn't end up being able to in the long run, but I think he gave us enough of of a really kind of thoughtful, nuanced answer that it was, it gave us, you know, for weeks, I think we were talking about that Q&A and it was, um, yeah, it was getting to meet him afterwards was extraordinary. I just have so much respect for him. I don't think that there's anyone in this business I respect more um, for what he did and the way he interacts with fans and the way he cares and uh, just it's just unheard of and I just love him yeah no he seems like a real sweetheart he spent hours um meeting fans didn't he yet um to autograph things after a huge long Q&A after like an almost three hour Q&A he stayed for an additional two to three hours until what long past midnight so that every single person at the Q&A could meet him and get something signed and talk to him it was just absolutely unheard of did you say anything particular to him when you met him to get something signed or were you a bit like, ah, it's Ray Johnson? I, I, I did that. And then <laughs> I, I'd been standing in line watching him and thinking to myself, you know, God, I, if I'd known he was going to do this, I would have written him a letter. I would have brought him a present. And as oh. I was standing there trying to think of what to do, I looked on my shirt and saw my Raylo trash pin. And I was like, you know what? I'm giving this to him. Oh, wow. Like, this this is going to be my present. So I, I took it off and I put it in my sweaty little hand. And when, when my, when it was my turn to meet him, he thanked, he recognized me, thanked me again for the question. And then I said, you know, I have a present for you. And I just handed it to him in my hand without saying anything. And, uh, <laughs> I don't know if you guys have seen, uh, one of the, one girl was filming his reaction and he just did his typical Ryan high pitched giggle reaction and just <laughs> lost it. And he's like, Oh my God, it's so perfect. I love it so much. And, uh, yeah. And then he gave me a hug and he signed my stuff and it was just it was a nice moment and all I could do was say thank you thank you I, I, I didn't talk coherently so yeah I think that's very acceptable 
I think that's amazing. And given the things that Ryan has been saying this week, I feel like that pin that you gave him was very appropriate. I'm just waiting for him to wear it. I feel like as soon as episode <laughs> nine is out, we're going to see him wearing it and just like loud and proud. That's what we want to amazing. aspire to. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and now we're ready to move on to our spotlight, which is, of course, discussing the music of The Last Jedi and Star Wars music in general, I suppose. Um, so, Christy, obviously, you're here to lend your expertise to the, the discussion. Um, and I know that you've written several amazing essays um, on the various aspects of The Last Jedi soundtrack. So maybe we should start with the the process of John Williams and Ryan working on The Last Jedi, because you've told me before that it's a bit unusual. And um, I just wanted to yeah, hear more about why that might be. Yeah, this was, you know, when I found out about this, the process that they had was pretty incredible to me. Um, Ryan normally works with a composer, Nathan Johnson, who's his cousin. And he said before that they're closest brothers. They grew up together making movies together. And their relationship when they start a film is very similar to how every film pretty much I've ever scored works. You know, you go in with the director into what's called a spotting session and you sit and watch the film and pause it a whole bunch and talk about what you want to have happen in the different scenes and how you want these character arcs to happen and, you know, the orchestrational choices and you go through it as, as Ryan says, beat by beat. But what he did with the last Jedi was they made it what's called a temp score where you like a lot of directors end up getting very attached to the temp score that they put in. They pull pieces from other scores to other films. Maybe it's a film they've done before, or maybe it's star Wars and they edit it in to kind of get a shape of what they want out of it. And that's what Ryan did with their music editor using John Williams music from all the other star Wars. And then they gave that to him and that was what they did instead of a spotting session. And said, you know, this is generally the shape and this is what we want. And he took that. And sometimes he went with what they wanted and sometimes he deviated from it. Um, but there was, Ryan kind of gives this impression that there's no way he was going to interfere with what John Williams wanted to do, right? Mm. So he was very much like, this is basically what we want. And I'm sure that they talked a lot more than that about it. I don't think that they just handed off the temp score. And when they showed up on the stage at Sony, they were hearing, you know, his choices and what he decided to do. But they definitely didn't sit side by side for hours the way that um, Ryan is used to and the way that me as a composer and most of my colleagues are used to. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder like, do you have any idea on what kind of impact that would have on the score? Like, does it feel different as a result? I think it does. Yeah. I think that it's testament to Ryan and how he structured and wrote the film and how clear everything is. I mean, at least to, to us <laughs> about how, you know, he wanted the story to progress and how he wanted to link it with the prequels and everything. So John Williams says often that when he started out in 1977, they didn't even know there was going to be a second film. Mm. Um, he didn't, I took some notes on this yesterday um, from a KUSC interview that John Williams did recently about, about the last Jedi and his exact words. Sorry, let me go down here. I put it on the notes. His exact words were, he didn't 
consciously set out to create and organize a stylistic unity from film to film over four decades. <laughs> it's been very organic that that's happened. And I think that the fact that Ryan kind of had a hands-off approach to it and said, you know, you do you, you do what you've been doing for 40 years has been really fascinating because he's a force. He is a force just as much as JJ and Ryan is in the film to shape how events are happening, depending on his musical choices. And there's obviously nothing that he could have done that Ryan didn't approve of. Right. And that Lucasfilm didn't approve of and that the story group didn't approve of. So, yeah. Yeah. Cause the, the music in star Wars really, I mean, it's hard to overstate how much of it feels like an, its own character, right? It Absolutely. feels so present in the movie even in the last jedi when it kind of drops out like you're still you're very conscious of it absolutely and i think even in the scenes of the last jedi where there's the least amount of score which is a lot of the force bond scenes um what they do use in those moments is even more important because the score is so understated and they're focusing on the sound design mm-hmm. yeah i remember reading or at least talking on the podcast about um well before the film came out, there was some kind of report suggesting that Ryan Johnson wanted to edit the film to John Williams's score. Do you know if that was true? Like if that actually came to be? Yeah, that's what they're what they're referring to is that temp score that they put together. Right, I, I, I see. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and so and I'm sure that like. John Williams came to him with pieces before they were even done with the movie, and I'm sure he did edit parts of it to to the score. I'm sure that happened in some sections, other parts he's referring to the temp score. It's very, I was so like trying to piece together. I felt like a detective trying to piece together the way that the score happened. And because <laughs> on The Force Awakens, it was much more straightforward. And the relationship that he had with JJ, from what I've heard, is much more straightforward in terms of how they work together and everything. Mm. Yeah, no, that's so interesting. Yeah, because there's a lot in The Last Jedi that feels like a natural continuation of The Force Awakens, especially with, obviously, Kylo and Rey's themes. Yeah. Um, but things like Rose's theme that are pretty brand new, at least to me, I don't know how much influence they have from existing Star Wars music, because I'm not the expert. Um, but I know that you've written quite extensively on that. You've written an amazing essay on how Beethoven influenced Rose's theme. Um, yeah. Could you hear about that? So um, I I picked up on it and I knew that probably everybody else had too. They just hadn't um, made the connection why Rose's theme sounds so familiar and why it's such an earworm and gets stuck in your head. So it immediately made me think of Ode to Joy. And the more I started looking into it, I mean, in general, I think that John Williams tends to give his absolute best themes to female characters, like Princess Leia's theme. Ray's theme. Now we have Rose's theme. Like he really gives these beautiful, lush, evocative, evolving, like dynamic themes to women. And the more I started thinking about what the story is behind Ode to Joy and how it connects to Rose's character. Um, so Ode to Joy has kind of become like an anthem uh, in the in the quest for freedom, political freedom, especially in Europe from the repressive conditions that dominated Europe in the, the you know the twentieth century. This is from a book about Beethoven's Ninth Symphony that Ode to Joy comes from. Um, and the more I started connecting that to what Rose and Page represent, the downtrodden and oppressed of the galaxy who put their hope in the symbol of the rebellion and and fight for what's right. Um, just 
just started, the more I researched it and the more I found all these really cool parallels and connections. Um, and that can't, that's not an accident. Like he hasn't ever talked about it. He has never talked about what influenced Rose theme, but um, it's just really, it's really amazing. And another quote from the article um, that I link in my essay says that um, the Ninth Symphony belongs to each person who attempts to listen to it attentively. We may never agree what it means, but as with an eclipse, all we can do is approach it indirectly with caution, humility, and wonder. And I felt like that quote resonated with me personally so much about The Last Jedi and about the lessons that we learned from it. And I mean, I am like a, a hardcore Star Wars fan, but to me, it is like what's what's best about humanity is these stories um, and the lessons that we learn from it and the way it affects all of us so powerfully and how we can be connected through it. So um, it was a lot to take once I started thinking about Rose's theme and a lot to process. But um, yeah, that's kind of what it what it means to me. And I, I think a lot of people agreed because a lot of people seem to like that that essay. <laughs> oh, yeah. And that's my favorite piece of the new soundtrack. And I yep. feel like Rose's character does embody the themes of the story so well. Yep. Um, and it just comes through so beautifully in, in the music. So Yeah. And that's just, it's part of his genius. And I just, I have so many composers that I love so much, but um, I just don't know who else could do so much with such a simple three phrase melody. You know, I, mm -hmm. I'm, I don't know who can communicate so much with so few notes at this point. Yeah. yeah, and it, it, it's really, I know it's not technically Finn's theme as, like, it's Rose's music, right? I, I can't remember what it's called exactly, but it's... Um, yeah, it, they never actually give it that name. It's it, You're right that it, it's in pieces like uh, The Rebellion is Reborn and right. the, the finale and stuff like that. So it's never actually given her name. Um, but yeah, so in that way, it does kind of, it's Finn's theme as well. It's the, it's part of the rebellion, the hope of the of the resistance as well, yeah. Yeah, and because she becomes such an important part of his story, they're kind of intertwined in that way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because yeah. Finn never had a theme in The Force Awakens, did he? So I suppose it makes sense no. that that music would fit him as well. And I yeah. got I got some criticism after I published that essay. Um, I got some my first anonymous mean message saying that, you know, I was minimizing Finn's role in the, in the films. And I was, you know, the fact that I wasn't outraged that he doesn't have a theme yet and that I, you know, hadn't written an essay about why doesn't Finn have a theme and why does his music have to be tied up with roses and that of the rebellion. And, um, you know, I just, I kind of didn't know, really know what to say to that because I feel like, his his journey has been so wrapped up in these other characters and the other um, arc of the resistance and him f finally coming to join it on his own, not just for Ray. And there's only, I feel like there's only so many like specific late motifs for specific characters that you can have. And he's focusing really on, you know, Kylo Ren and Ray as, because as we know now, they are kind of the heart of the story. So which isn't trying yeah. to say that Finn's character isn't isn't important. He's hugely important. It's just this is the way that he's chosen to do it. Yeah, I mean, Han Solo didn't have a theme in the original trilogy, did he? No, his theme was Han Solo and the princess, and it's a love theme. Yeah. Right, okay. So, yeah, yeah you can see the Rose's theme as Finn's and that it's that side of the story and what she comes to mean to him, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
Like, how much do you think John Williams would need to know about the characters in order to write these themes that feel so like rich and fitting for them? Because I have been struck sometimes by the kinds of comments that John Williams makes. Because he'll he'll make comments like, "Oh, is Daisy in the next one?" <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yes. "Yes, John, Daisy is definitely in the next one." And yeah. like, I just find there's this really interesting like what seems to be like a bit of a disconnect because the themes are so rich and they seem Mm -hmm. to be so layered with meaning and they seem so fitted for the characters and their stories and their development Mm -hmm. in the films. Mm -hmm. And then the comments John Williams will make in interviews sometimes seem to go against that a bit. And yeah, I was just wondering if you could talk about that a bit because that's something I'm actually quite interested in. He also says things like, well, you know, I've never actually watched the movies. (laughs) Meaning, Meaning he doesn't sit down and watch them every weekend like I did in middle school like of course he's watched the movies like people take these comments and like see John Williams you know doesn't like The Last Jedi because he didn't watch it and uh, you know I've heard (laughs) all these comments so I of course I don't I've met him but I don't know him personally Uh, my one of my dear friends and mentors in the industry does know him very well that's who introduced me to him and when I met him I was sobbing like sobbing my heart out I'd had my son, like six months before, I was still very hormonal. I was rolling up to in a little golf cart to meet him. And my friend was like, get it together, get it together. So I kind of composed myself. And he just sort of walked over and leaned on the little cart and looked at me with these very sparkly eyes and said something like, you know, who have you brought me today? Who's this? And he was looking at me with these very just sparkly little eyes. And he's very playful. He's almost, um, I mean, he's 86 and he's kind of looking at the world through I can be, I kind of, kind of have, can do what I want and be, be a little, you know, say what I want to say. Yeah, and sure. I, I think that in that particular interview where he says, you know, Kathy called me up and asked if I would do the next one. And I said, is Ray in it? You know, there's listening to it in context through the whole interview. I think that he's just being very playful and with the people's expectations of him. And I think that, you know, he does absolutely, especially with the first one. He came into it not knowing what it was going to grow into and what it was going to become. And he wrote these beautiful things just according to the script and according to the performances of the actors and, you know, his relationship with George Lucas and everything. So um, I think that it has absolutely evolved over the years and that he's drawing on the richness of this whole tradition over 40 years to do what he's doing now. And he might he might not sit and watch them and he might not, you know, analyze it in the way that we do but he he absolutely like he he's drawing on what he can sense from the story as being so important and and rich emotionally and connecting to people and writing from there so I I think that he's he's definitely playing with people a little bit also with the with some of the ways he interacts (laughs) yeah no that makes complete sense Mm -hmm. I think in a way that kind of demonstrates that he's really remarkably intuitive Mm-hmm. in terms of like how he crafts the music because yeah like you say I don't think he like labors over it the way that some of us would like labor over our essays about his music yeah but there's just this amazing like gift that he has that means he can just compose this music that is so rich that it warrants that analysis and that's really cool yeah and that's the that's the other thing like people will will analyze exactly where what theme happens at which point and then I'm like okay well let's go back to a new hope think about the moment when Vader spoiler alert when Vader kills Obi-Wan and you know Luke is watching and he's standing off to the side and he says no and the music that swells dramatically is Princess Leia's theme mm. it's not it, it has no deeper meaning that doesn't yeah. mean something that is because 
it felt right to him in that moment to to have this the her theme, which is very, you know, has this big major six leap up and is very evocative and feels good. Um, and it just felt right to him in that moment. It wasn't because that has anything to do with Leia. She's standing there being like, come on, we got to go. And, and they're running. So not, not absolutely everything has, has like this huge, deeper conspiracy meaning behind <laughs> it. I think yeah. a lot of it, a lot of it does. And like, I'm the first one to say that, yes, I absolutely think he consciously set up Kylo Ren's theme and Ray's theme to be a reverse of the first intervals of Across the Stars. Like, I absolutely am behind that. And I think he knew about Raylo from the beginning of The Force Awakens. But, um, you know, I'm getting ahead of myself there. So. <laughs> cool. <laughs> well, on that note, maybe now would be a good time to talk about the Force theme and how it's used in the movie. Because that seems very, very significant in terms of the particular scene it's attached to. Well, right now I can just think of the scene, is in the Raylo <laughs> scene, where mm-hmm. that theme comes in. But I'm sure you'll correct me if there are other uses of it, because there probably are that I'm just forgetting. Yeah, I, I actually, I've only written the first part of... Um, for, focusing on the original trilogy, focusing on the Force theme. But last night I was watching The Last Jedi and the video that Corsac made where all the instances of the Force theme across the entire saga films that we have. I can't believe she took the time to put this together. It's so amazing. Um, And so I took notes on all of it. But what I've kind of been exploring is this idea that the Force theme is just like the Force in the movie, in that it is like the cosmic will of the force. Um, You know, there's a quote in the last Jedi novelization where Luke is kind of connecting himself back into that and plugging himself back into it. And he recognizes that, you know, the force, the cosmic force has a will and it wants certain things to happen and it shapes certain things. And the more I looked at that in, in the original trilogy, especially with the empire strikes back you see how many times the the force theme comes back related to and especially in return of the jedi related to anakin and related to vader like the force theme is foreshadowing what is going to happen because even in that moment where vader makes his decision and picks the emperor up and tosses him over it's the force theme playing there but it's Mm -hmm. been in in all these other key points and key moments like leading you towards that and it's total it's totally fascinating to go back and look in the original trilogy and see all the times where it really makes it feel like it's the the force theme is like a living thing within the score and within the movies um it doesn't belong to any one character or situation it doesn't just play for obi-wan it doesn't just play for luke doing cool things with the force it has it's shaping events and scoring all these moments that are really important so if you go into the last jedi it does occur in a bunch of different places when people are doing cool force things like when princess leia before it transitions into her theme when she's kind of hooking into the force and and healing herself and coming alive and being able to to fly back to the to the ship like it happens there um a really cool instance of it in the last jedi is when luke goes on the falcon so you know the falcon is one of the first places that he used the force when he's got his lightsaber and his blast shield on and the little thing is zipping around and shooting him in the leg and Han's laughing. But, you know, it's not like a, a hugely resonant place with the force, but the reason why it's playing is because he's thinking about Han and he's thinking about Ben. And when he reaches up and touches the dice, the music goes da 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 and does the, the first intervals of Kylo Ren's bad guy theme. So, 
there's like all of the, especially when you listen to the score only version, there's all of this stuff that you realize like he's completely, he's foreshadowing things that are going to happen in the next movie. Like why would Luke be on the Millennium Falcon with the force theme when he would should be, you know, thinking about Han, he's thinking about Ben, you know, and Han as well, but he's thinking about, you know, what's going to, what's going to happen in the future was in terms of, of him trying to help Ben. Yeah. It's, it can be used very literal in The Last Jedi, like when Rey is in her first lesson and she's literally saying, inside me, that same force. Obviously, the force theme is playing. Um, but yeah, it, it's so significant that during the hand touch scene, that's the music that plays. We can call back to all the different Raylo moments where the force theme is played. I'm just going to pull that up real quick. Yeah, starting, starting in The Force Awakens... The first time that the Force theme appears with a Raylo scene is, of course, that iconic moment when she calls the Skywalker lightsaber to her, and he's mm-hmm. giving her that that incredible look. Um, and that music is actually the same music as when Luke in A New Hope rolls up to the um, Lars homestead and sees that it's been completely burnt and that his aunt and uncle are lying there. And there's another person who analyzes the music who, you know, made that connection, her Raylo musings. And she said, you know, this is really significant because for both of them, this is the point when they kind of commit themselves to this, when they mm-hmm. realize that there's no going back and they're, they're going to go do this and, and learn the ways of the force and become a Jedi. During their battle in the snowy forest of Starkiller Base, the force theme happens a whole bunch of times. When they're in that yin-yang pose and the light, the Kylo's lightsaber is being driven into the snow. When their lightsabers are locked on the edge of the cliff and it's those choker shots and they're breathing very heavily. I mean, to me, this is all foreshadowing for what we get in The Last Jedi. And even though as much as all of us were waiting for a Raylo love theme to swell in that moment, it's it's hugely significant that it's the Force theme because the Force once again is guiding events and wants this to happen. The Force ships it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So that's really interesting then because obviously within the film itself there is the whole thing about like Snoke claiming the ownership of that connection between Rey and Kylo Ren. So, like, in terms of your interpretation of the music, do you see it more as being about how, well, Snoke may have had something to do with it, like, maybe he, like, intensified it for his own purposes, but he really was just, like, a bit player in this larger cosmic drama, and it was never really about him controlling them, it was something that was ordained by higher forces. That's absolutely what I believe. Mm. Yeah. And I think, you know, I ascribe to the theory that the force bond was started during the interrogation scene. And then in all these other moments, um, what's that, that quote that Daisy has when one time she covered her mouth and said, oh, I shouldn't have said that when she, when they were, she's like, we know when we're discovering the false together or we're finding the false, you know, that's another moment where (laughs) it it just intensified. Yeah. I love your British accent. (laughs) Um, Funny, just a side note, my parents are from Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe and mm-hmm. then they moved to London and then they moved to Canada where I was born so and then they moved to the United States so they have a very strange accent that I cannot imitate so I do my stock British accent for them so I just <laughs> that's like well, I have practiced trying to sound like my mom and that's what I think she sounds like so <laughs> <laughs> yeah no that's a very eclectic mix of influences yeah. so not surprised yeah. <laughs> possible to imitate them yeah <laughs> yeah, what you said about the novelization was so true, this idea of the cosmic force versus the living force and how everything's connected and mm-hmm. how like a major theme 
of The Last Jedi, and I guess because it starts in The Force Awakens, is that there's this real sense of destiny surrounding these characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, this idea of their hands coming together and the Force theme swelling, that's like a, a magical moment, right? It's this idea of this is right, um, yep. as opposed to what... get away from the villain. You know? Yep. <laughs> And that's really cool that you mentioned that the living force versus the cosmic force. So like if we look at the at The Last Jedi and any of these other movies, like the living force that they're drawing on around them is why the force theme plays when Luke's hanging upside down in the Wampa cave and he reaches for the for the lightsaber and it flies into his hand. You know, there's there's differences. There's the living force is talking when Rey is connected to the force and she's talking about it, life, death, the island, all that stuff. Um when Luke reaches out to Leia when she's asleep or, you know, unconscious on the, on the Radis and, you know, Luke, Leia, like all of those things are examples of like the different ways that this theme can be used. But then the hand touch, all these other moments, that's to me, that's the cosmic force. That's, um, that's the force saying like, this is, this is what is supposed to be happening. And this is where that's the cosmic force acting in the original trilogy influencing Anakin and Vader to, to be redeemed and, and make the decision that he does. Mm-hmm. So is the cosmic force the force that has like a will? It has like things yeah. that it wants to happen, and then the living force is just is everything that's there. Ooh, that's that's kind of how I'm looking at it. And the more the yeah. more I get into this, the more and like this is another thing I noticed last night. So I looked back at the Force Awakens, and the first time you hear the Force theme in the Force Awakens is when Maz is talking to Rey. She says, mm. "Close your eyes, feel it, the light. It's always been there. It will guide you." And that comes right after she says her line about they're never coming back, but there's someone who still could. Mm. The belonging you seek is not behind you, it's ahead. So is she talking about the light of the force in general to guide Ray? Is she talking about the light inside Ben that will guide her to, to help him? You know, it's like there's so many different layers and meanings to it. And I think that the way that the force theme is structured, the way that the the melody, the harmony, the the orchestration, it's so flexible and can be adapted to so many different situations that we, you know, there it's endless discussion of which which meaning you can take from it. Yeah, and when we get that line from Snoke about darkness rising and light to meet it, that idea as well is like the the will of the cosmic force bringing Rey and Kylo together, right? That absolutely it, the force willed Ray to have those powers so that she could be the equal in the light. Yep. And that she could help him. Yeah. So I'm almost done with um, the prequel section of that discussion. And then the sequel one, I'm, I just started on it last night. So I, my thoughts on it aren't completely formed yet, but that's kind of the direction that I was going in with it. That's really exciting. This is one other thing. Um, Within the film music circles that I walk in, there's some people who criticize The Last Jedi score because of how many times the Force theme is used. Mm -hmm. And I kind of took umbrage with that because the Force has a lot of work to do in The Last Jedi. It has (laughs) has a lot of stuff it needs to accomplish. And, you know, sometimes people criticize it like, why does it play when, you know, Finn is saying that, we got to destroy the cannon. Like Finn and Rose and Poe are in that scene with Leia kind of off to the side. Like none of these people are force sensitive. They're not force users. Why is the force theme playing? Because it doesn't belong to the characters that are force sensitive. It, it's This is a significant scene because they are the ones that are going to delay 
the you know the destruction long enough so that Luke can come back, so that he can have his talk with Ben, so that all of this stuff happens, so that Luke and Leia can connect. You know, like the Force is saying, just give me a minute, and <laughs> and Finn and and Holdo and all these different people that it plays in scenes with them, they are part of it. They are they are instruments of the cosmic force, just like it, kind of everyone in the story is. Yeah, yeah, I feel like the the Last Jedi and especially the novelization, again, not to get too spoilery, but it really does kind of give you this idea that the force is using the characters as its instrument, right? Um, so it throws yes. it up all of these interesting ideas about like whether a character has agency if the force is trying to do something through them or they're there for a, a specific purpose. But it it has for me more of this like Greek mythological vibe that the force yeah. is kind of like the the gods on Olympia and then um, the the characters are the mortals in a way. Like it's even though they're force sensitive, um, mm. it's acting through them to fulfill some kind of destiny. Yeah, I remember you guys talked about that last week, and that totally turned a light bulb on when I heard you talk about that. When I was thinking about this stuff, I totally agree. Um, was that um what we were saying about Luke potentially being like a bit of a Greek god, like potentially influencing things? Yeah, yeah. No, so in line in line with that, this is strained slightly from the music, so I'll try and keep this brief. But like, there was debate about Yoda. Like, like how can Yoda? He's a Force ghost. Like, how can he like control the weather? Like, to bring that like lightning strike down and burn the tree. You know, mm-hmm. I saw lots of people take umbrage of that. But like, based on this discussion, I'm wondering if it's not so much about Yoda as again like that wheel of the cosmic force and like Yoda's like channeling that and feeling that, and that's more what that's about. It's the Force acting rather than Yoda himself, perhaps kind of brings up this interesting debate about force ghosts and whether they are really the person who died or if it's once they've become one with the force that's the force kind of using them as a manifestation i, I don't know if that makes sense yeah but, um like yeah like agents much- of its will perhaps yeah yeah and the force can imbue them with whatever it wants them to be able to do i like that <laughs> so it sounds a bit smug considering yeah I like the idea that I had yes. that might yeah, explain exactly. why I like Yoda so much in The Last Jedi and I don't usually <laughs> I with the first time I saw it on opening night I remember I mean I had wept profusely like 20 times by that point in the movie and when I actually when the camera panned over and you see the little glowing blue back of his little head I like lost it I was just like after everything that's already happened like you're giving me Yoda and then when he started talking and he was so silly and funny and just cackling and just like trolling him lighting the tree on fire it was so perfect and then the way that that scene ends with Yoda's theme and it's very delicately orchestrated and what he says about um, you know the great failures the greatest teacher and we are what they grow beyond like as a as a parent I was sobbing like thinking about how that applies to children and everything but also so just in terms of us as, as Star Wars fans and the fandom in general and all the, the way that people want to cling to what it used to be and not let it go where it where in these interesting new directions, which aren't even really that new. They're very tied into what it used to be. Um, that scene is, I, I mean, hands down up with the Raylo scenes is one of my favorite in the whole movie. Oh, same. It's yeah, it's perfectly done. It's really beautiful. Perfect. That's that's it's perfect from start to finish. There's like not a wasted moment. Yeah. Stunning. Uh yeah. So I think here on the notes, I think the next thing we want to cover is some love feuds. <laughs> love. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm very classy. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, please take the floor. You'll be much better at discussing this than I ever would. (laughs) Uh, What what got me thinking about this is that um, once I started uh, posting the meta, I started getting a lot of asks or messages being like, hey, you know, at I, this is on the score, like you know, listening to it on iTunes or Spotify or whatever, like this is the hand touch music. And then people would edit different things into that scene and be like, this is it. See? And I'd be like, no, it's not. Stop, please. Um, you know, <laughs> like, well, I could, I can prove it to you when we have it on, you know, on March 13th, I can prove it to you. But I had to end up, you know, going back and explaining, like, it's actually not like I went in and saw it the eighth and ninth time specifically to just take notes and and really pay attention to what's happening in those scenes. So I ended up writing this essay comparing the love theme from the original trilogy, which is called Han Solo and the Princess, and then the love theme from the second trilogy, which of course is Across the Stars, and you know how those two things function and how they're different and how they're similar and what they're, they're structuring in the narrative. And the conclusion that I ended up coming to... Um, let me find this right here. So I'm not trying to pass judgment on Padme as a character um, in the in their prequel trilogy. I think that she's totally underrated and amazing. But you know, she ended up making the decision to proceed with Anakin in a relationship after he had gone nuts on Tatooine and you know seen what happened to his mother and then murdered that entire village of sand people. And, you know, she, that horror she felt at the revelation and his, you know, I'm going to become all powerful. And in the background of that scene, the Vader theme plays, you know, very subtly, like, why didn't you hear that Padme? (laughs) You know, John Williams is trying to warn you. (laughs) Trying to warn you. Yeah. So, you know, she, she makes her decision that, you know, this happened, but I can, I can deal with it and I can help him or whatever. Whereas in the sequel trilogy, you know, there's somebody who, despite the mistakes that she makes and the failure that she has, is not willing to cross the moral line yet to be with this person that she loves, which, you know, Ray and Ben. So at the two points where Han and Leia are in Empire Strikes Back when we first get their love theme and then where Anakin and Padme are in the prequel trilogy, Ben and Ray are nowhere near that. So if we had gotten a love theme in The Last Jedi... I think it would not have made sense as much as we wanted it and as much as everybody was ready for it and, you know, <laughs> even, even had instruments we wanted to hear it on, like, you know, oh, but Across the Stars is on the oboe, so that would be beautiful. And, like, <laughs> the princess, that, the flute, you know, I, in my head canon, I had it all picked. I practically had it written in my head, but it's just, it wasn't the right time. Like, even in the moment where Ben kills Snoke and, and the lightsaber comes flying and Ray grabs it. It's the force theme again, because the force theme is like, yes, this is good. Like work together, you know, make this happen. But after that, of course, you know, it kind of falls apart. So it wouldn't have been emotionally satisfying for everyone in the long run. I don't think that it's not to say that I'm not going to watch it over and over obsessively and analyze it and try to hear hints I absolutely want to hear hints of it somewhere, but I'm not going to go out on a, I'm not going to go out and say like, yes, there's definitely something there because I just don't know yet if there is a, is a subtle foreshadowing of a Raylo love theme. But for now, the Raylo love theme that we do have is the force theme. And like, that's awesome. Yeah. That's like top grade music. Yeah. To be honest. (laughs) 
you know, how does it get better? It's it's amazing, and like just it's it's just like another example of how third time is the charm. Like the first two big Star Wars romances, like kind of didn't work out. Like they kind of didn't go that well, and so it's it's very exciting to think that they're again going against the mold of how it's gone before and saying like, no, y'all going to get a love theme for this couple that's going to get it right when it's ready. Mm. Yeah. No, that's so true. I I remember after The Force Awakens came out, there was like a lot of analysis of the respective themes of Rey and Kylo. Because obviously there's all these points where they potentially converge and they parallel each other. And I think someone did an analysis and it's kind of like one of the themes is cut off prematurely and then the other one picks up from that in a really like seamless way, which I'm sure you could talk about in a much more um, accomplished way than I can. Um, But yeah, like, you said you'd kind of like written a Raylo love theme in your head. Would you mm-hmm. see it being some kind of blend of those two pre-existing themes or like something completely new? So I think something new, but very influenced by, by those. And like the, one of the things that ties them together um, before I talk about that also, I did, I'm going to send you guys a link to this little thing I did on SoundCloud where I combined Ray's theme and the force theme. And it's very cool to see how those two intertwine. Um mm. But yeah, the the similar like Kylo has his two themes. He's got his bad guy theme, da, 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 da. and then he, I'm a terrible singer, by the way. I play piano really well, but I'm awful at singing. Um, and then he has <laughs> you know his conflict theme, da, 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 da. and that plays a lot when Ray is around. It plays a lot when he's you know being called to the light. Um, Oh, and incidentally, when the differences between men and women analyzing the music of Star Wars is very funny. There's a a guy who analyzes it who I respect a lot, and he refers to Kylo's conflict theme as his wannabe theme, like (laughs) wannabe Vader. And I'm like, what? Did we watch the same movie? Like, I love your analysis, but like, that's what you got from it. It's Kylo Ren's bad guy theme that has the similarities between with Ray's theme and with Across the Stars. So, you know, some of the things that they share are um, in Ray's theme, da, 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 that's the opening notes. You know, it's a minor third up and a minor six down. And then when you look at Kylo's bad guy theme, da, 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 again, that's a minor third up and a minor six down. So that's, you know, kind of how they're linked. I would expect a Raylo love theme to have, inter- you know, some of those intervals woven together. And then the way it relates to Across the Stars is that the opening of Across the Stars, da, 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 that's the opposite. It's up a minor six and down a minor third. So that's kind of where they link together. I would expect it to have some of these kind of big sweeping sixth and seventh um, intervals and kind of similar rhythms and stuff. Like I, I definitely think it's going to be, if he gives us one, it's going to be new, but it's going to have elements of those themes all wrapped up together. Yeah. Cause I remember when the force awakens came out and John Williams was talking about Ray's theme, he said that he'd consciously given it a, a theme of um, adventure as opposed to something like romance which is really fitting yeah. for the beginning of The Force Awakens where we find Rey kind of waiting around for her life to begin, right? And she's dreaming of going off on adventure. And Absolutely. And he, says, he says it's an interesting challenge with her because it doesn't suggest a love theme in any way. It suggests a female adventurer, but with great strength. She's a fighter. She's infused with the Force. And it needed to be something that was strong but thoughtful. Yeah, I think that's so important for Rey at the beginning yeah. of the, the story. Totally, totally. And the other thing about John Williams, too, is that he is literally the biggest 
Daisy slash Ray fan in the world. He is like over the moon about Daisy and loves her so much and loves the character of Ray. And uh, I think that that also um, on that same KUSC interview we were talking about before, where he says, I think that Ray's parents could be revealed in the next movie. I don't believe that they're, <laughs> you know, that's, that's his Daisy love coming out. That's his Ray love coming out. He wants, yeah. you know, he, he just, he has, he's allowed to have his own head cannon. So. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of what, people talk about with like wanting Rey's parents to be someone still even after The Last Jedi is about wanting to see Rey be happy which is what we all want right we want her to find that that sense of happiness and fulfillment and she will by the end of the story it's just yeah it's up for debate as to how that will happen exactly 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 well we know it's ahead of her not behind her so (laughs) yep (laughs) as well explained yep um uh, yeah, so next thing that we have here is that you might have some inside info from the last Jedi scoring session. That's yes. exciting. My my friend who was present, um, you know, he was one of a very, very small group of people that were invited to that session. Like, very wow. small. Um, it wasn't on the Force Awakens. There were a lot more people present. Um, you know, JJ just has a different style, but Ryan kept it very intimate. And um, my friend, he had to, you know, he can't really talk about a lot of it, but he he called me on the way home from the session, and he was just weeping, like crying profusely. And he's he's in his fifties. He's a Hollywood veteran. He has seen it all and been around the block a million times. Like he's. You know, but he feels the same way about John Williams that that I do and that a lot of us do. And so um, the thing about where they recorded it at Sony, like I've been not not recording my own projects, but as a guest at other people's sessions, I've been on every major scoring stage in L.A. at this point. And there's something very special about Sony where right when the orchestra is all set up and right before they're about to record, you know, and other stages, the red light goes on and everyone knows to be quiet. But at Sony, there's like this very hushed moment where the air conditioning shuts off, the lights dim, and then the red light goes on. And it's very reverent. And it, the musicians are like, you know, priests and priestesses. And John Williams is up there and he's like, you know, a god in a way. Like, it's very, <laughs> very sacrilegious of me to say, but that's how I felt when I was there. Um, I was there for a completely different project, but as I walked around, I looked at the podium where he stood and I, I looked around at all the history in that room. And, um, you know, a lot of the players that were there the day I was were the same players that played on The Last Jedi. And, you know, wow. so I was looking at the piano and um, I'm not sure if it was the same piano that they recorded it on because sometimes he rents a piano and brings it in. But um, just being in that same space was completely thrilling. And my friend said that, you know, Ryan was, of course, at the session, but that he didn't really give any notes he was very walking around with his camera and just kind of nerding out and having a great time and loving it. But he wasn't, you know, sitting in the control room with a score, giving detailed feedback the way I've seen a lot of directors do. He was just in the moment, enjoying it and loving it so much. And uh, yeah, that day that I was there, I got to meet some of the people who played on it. And it was it just and I got to meet Sean Murphy, who is John Williams recording engineer who he does everything with and this guy is just a legend and I got to kind of shake his hand and tell him how big of a fan I was so it was really cool that's really fabulous that really seems to match up with what I've heard Ryan say in interviews as well so he has talked about look John Williams is a master I'm not really going to interfere with what he does you know no one knows this stuff better than he does absolutely that's really cool that that's what you've heard as well yeah and 
I just, I, I wanted, of course, I wanted to talk to Ryan about that when I met him, but he'd been going for so many hours and I didn't want to bother him. So all I could really say was, thank you for Raylo and I love you. And uh, I hope at some point I get to talk to him about it some more. But Yeah, have you guys had a chance to watch The Director and the Jedi yet? Yes. Because there's a, there's a part where Ryan's talking about being a Star Wars director on that and, and talking about him and Ram, his producer, coming in and feeling like they're the outsiders because everyone else there has already worked on Star Wars in some capacity, whether they're at mm. ILM. And he doesn't mention John Williams directly at that moment, but I wonder if that kind of feeds into how he might have been during that recording, just feeling like he he knows more about this than I do. He's the one who created all of this amazing music four decades ago. So I'm just kind of sit back and trust his judgment and enjoy it almost like a fan because Ryan is a fan of Star Wars. Absolutely. And I think, you know, he, he obviously his previous movies, when you listen to Brick and you listen to Looper, his cousin, Nathan Johnson, he does really amazing work, like really unique. He's got his own voice and he's got a really good sense of storytelling. So Ryan cares very deeply about the music and how it's, how it's going to work. And he has that sort of collaborative relationship on his other projects, but um, in a way, I'm sure that it, with even with his prowess as a storyteller and a writer and his his stature in a way, he probably felt like so intimidated to kind of go toe to toe with John Williams and talk about what he wanted. Um, so that's probably why he was comfortable taking such kind of more a step back and and letting it letting him take so much control of it. So it's really cool. Mm-hmm. I think it all worked together really well. So I don't think he had anything oh. to worry about. <laughs> yeah, and it, it just it drives me nuts when you know. You, people haven't seen the film as many times. Like I I don't say this in a way to try to say that you can't enjoy the last Jedi without seeing it multiple times. But I do think that it only benefits the average general audience member to see it multiple times and to really, to really soak it in. And it's, and with the score too, like a lot of my composer friends came out of it saying like, Oh, well, you know, there was one new theme and it was okay. But, and you know, the force theme was in there a lot. And like, it was, it was cool to hear Luke and Leia's theme. And um, that's a scene that we have to talk about too. The, the reunion between Luke and Leia and how seamlessly the score goes from their music, which has only been used, you know, like one other time in the series, it segues into the Han Solo and the Princess theme, and then it segues into the Force theme, and it's and and Princess Leia's theme. It does everything in that one little scene, and it's absolutely astonishing. It's so good. Yeah, I remember the music in that scene sounding really like ethereal to me, which obviously yeah. is appropriate given the nature of what's happening. Um, and yeah, you're right. It's I liked how it just drew upon all these old pre-existing themes, but then it did stuff with them that made it feel very like new and vital, yep. which I really appreciated. So. Yeah, that's the kind of thing where like people are, you know, they're not talking about the Last Jedi score on that level, and I'm like, really? Like you didn't hear that? You didn't pick up on that? Like, there's so every scene is just like so intense, and like you you watch the you listen to the cue, the supremacy. You listen to. Um, the, even the just the opening, like the whole battle from from when the film opens to you know Paige's death and that incredible music when Paige dies, it's like I ca- I can't get enough of it. Like ever since the score came out, I've been listening to it every day and just marveling. And every time I listen to it, I hear something new, something absolutely incredible. Yeah, I have to say I've watched this movie so many times at this point that it wasn't really until I got to watch the music only version this week that I, I was picking up on things that I hadn't before because there is so much 
there in the story. It, they take away the dialogue, they take away the sound effects, and it feels so operatic when you're watching it. Like it's oh, it's absolutely. almost a whole new experience. It was really wonderful absolutely. that they were able to use that. Yeah, and- I'm so excited to watch the music only version. I, I saw one clip. Um, it was the hand touching scene because, of course, it was. Of course, <laughs> um, and that just played so so well. Like it was amazing. Like how yeah, everything that you needed came through purely through the music and the visuals, which I really loved. Because while I'm not obviously a music expert like I do love silent films mm-hmm. and obviously with silent films you get exactly that you just get the image and you get the score so yep. it's very very pure it's just those two aspects and I, I really do think that great films should be able to succeed with only those two elements yep. you know obviously dialogue and sound effects and everything that's great and that's very important as well and for most people they can't watch films about those things but I think that's just the purest kind of cinema. And yeah, it shows again to me that Ryan just did such an amazing job by composing the film in such a way where it still works on that level. So he clearly had real confidence in the fact that it did because we know he really pushed to make that music-only version available. Absolutely. And when, when you do get a chance to watch it, like um, the the part that I feel was almost written so that you don't you don't need anything else like the the cue it's from the it's from the supremacy on the score um and it's when ben is in his in his tie silencer about to go blow up the bridge of the radis and you know it starts that moment where they they kind of have a force connection and in when you're watching the actual movie with all the dialogue and sound effects and everything that is actually a very music focused scene and the the sound effects kind of do fade away into like a force bondy type kind of echoey more subdued thing um so leia's theme you hear it on the french horn um as is a common way to hear it and there's a very dissonant cluster of strings underneath and you hear this you've heard it in the force awakens too when han is looking at ben as he walks out onto that bridge in the middle of Starkiller base and there's a kind of a plaintive oboe line happening and then there's these dissonant like crunchy strings underneath and it's symbolizing how wrong and how tragic it is that he is divided from his parents in this way from Han in The Force Awakens and from Leia in The Last Jedi. So, of course, he can't he can't pull the trigger. He can't do that. And he takes his thumb off. And as soon as he makes that decision, his bad guy theme is heard again, but it's it's like warped and twisted. And it's it's not it's not the way it normally sounds. And it's in the the cellos and violas, and it's very rich and it kind of just pulls your heartstrings and it builds to this moment, this climax, and then there's just a kind of a sparseness, and that's when the companion TIE fighters fire the missile. And it's like you don't need anything but the acting. Carrie's acting and and, ben, and Adam's acting and the music, and you could everything else could have stayed out. And it would be, you know, it's like the most powerfully affecting thing. And the, for as I was watching the music only version, that was like the first moment where I was just like, oh, my gosh, like this is it's it's genius what he did. Yeah, the acting yeah. from both of them in that scene is just incredible. Yeah, that's another thing that um, when I was listening to the KUSC interview that John said, he didn't t- really touch upon the performances of anyone else except for Carrie. And he said, um, you know, I think she did her best work in The Last Jedi and that it's such a gift that we have this last performance from her and he had great admiration for her and called her witty and brilliant and praised her as one of the best script doctors in hollywood and that um you know he's just misses her a lot and it was really sweet 
That's so lovely. Yeah. I really need yeah. to listen to that interview because I've seen transcripts from it, but from everything you've been saying, it sounds like a really, really good listen just in its own right. Oh, it's, it is. And like you get to hear his tone of voice and just his soft little twinkly way of speaking and um, yeah I just I just love him so much too because when I when I did meet him and you know my friend said oh would, let's get a picture and I, I was I didn't want to ask for the picture but then he said yes of course of course and Aww. I start, I started crying again and he put he put his hand on he put his hand, arm around me and he just kind of like squeezed me like a little encouragement like it's okay oh <laughs> that's so adorable so I, I'm so excited because I'm going to see him in concert I think in October or November, so he's coming to London. Oh, and, I saw that, yeah. Yeah, and I am so, so excited, I can't tell you, because obviously being on this side of the pond, it's not really realistic to of see course. him normally. And it's, yeah. I think it's been decades since he last performed in the UK. So, yeah, it's just really funny. And, oh my God, can't wait. I'm so excited for you, and I will be squeeing that entire day knowing that you're about to go do that. So. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm guessing you've seen him conduct, like, Christy, is that right? Yeah, um, because I live in LA, I'm really lucky I get to see him every year right around the time of my birthday. Oh, that's so amazing. He goes to the Hollywood Bowl and he does um, a whole, you know, two hour extravaganza of his music. And he's kind of been slowing down over the past couple of years. Like this year, he had David Newman um, come and do half the concert conducting and he did the other half. Um, right. And he always like he does tons and tons of encores. And then, you know, it's the last one because he comes out on stage and he makes a little like sleepy pillow with his hands and he lays his head on his hands. And that's like <laughs> that's when, you know, he's done and he's not going to do another encore. But he always does like two or three encores and everyone brings their lightsabers and we conduct every Star Wars piece with our lightsabers. And it's just it's really fun. Oh, that's amazing. Yes, you got to see him as well, didn't you, Kirsty, at Celebration? Yeah, it was a surprise. It was the 40th anniversary panel. And yeah. Oh my God, you were there? Yes. It was so exciting because it hadn't been formally announced, but there'd been whispers for a while. And then, um, yeah, we'd all been queuing up overnight and we were almost delirious with tiredness. No one had really got much sleep. And then they just like peeled back these curtains and it was a, a little orchestra and John Williams there. And he just kind of went through all of the major themes of Star Wars. And obviously people got very emotional when he played Leia's theme and yeah oh my it was goodness. just so beautiful I felt very that's lucky amazing that's so cool what that's once in a lifetime that's so cool. I know yeah I was very very excited to be there so. I know you've thought about the potential love theme for nine but do you have any other ideas about where it might go or is it just kind of who knows depending on what the story will end up being mm-hmm. and stuff like that I have I have one other thing that I want to have happen. So um, there's another part of the Force Awakens score. There's a moment where, you know, when Han and Ben are talking on that bridge where it's in a queue called Torn Apart. And oh, yeah. it's that music where when it seems like he's going to come home and, and be okay, there's like this this musical thing that happens. Um, and Raylo Musings did a really great breakdown of it. And I'm as I watched the last Jedi over and over again, I'm trying to see if I heard any, any more of that or any echo of that. In addition to a love theme, I'm kind of hoping to get like a, like a Ben solo redemption theme. Um, perhaps something like, you know, one, one of my, one of the popular things to imagine is him flying the millennium Falcon, like in this heroic way and like coming in and doing something badass. And like in my head, there's like a Ben solo redemption theme playing there. So, um, <laughs> That's another thing that I would love to see, if possible. 
That sounds yeah, awesome. It'd be really interesting to see if they would somehow tie in any of the motifs from his parents or his grandfather or something like that. Exactly. And like, I'm also really looking forward if, if force ghost Luke is a thing, like if that really happens, I'm looking forward to seeing what music they pair with that. Like, I'm sure it will be the force theme, but be cool to hear kind of the main title fanfare, which, which was sort of Luke's quote theme music for a while. It'd be cool to hear maybe like a understated version of that. Um, uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm really excited to see ev- everything that he does with it. Yeah, and of course that will be his last project for Star Wars. So. Yep, he doesn't want to tempt fate and go beyond a ninth symphony. So, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of composers when they start their tenth, they die. So we don't oh, want wow. that to happen for a long time. Yeah. No, please, please. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that was wonderful. Thank you so much, Christy. Thank that was you. really it was so fun. fun. Yeah, I feel seriously. I feel like I have like gained a lot of new appreciation for the score because like I did enjoy it, but I don't know. It didn't strike me as much as the Force Awakens score, and I didn't find myself just listening to the score in its own right like I did for the Force Awakens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But now I really want to do that. I just want to listen to the recording and soak it all up. So awesome! Yeah, really and if good. I if I rambled and was not making sense at any point, we can just like edit that. And <laughs> oh no, you didn't. You were great. <laughs> Okay, good, okay. Yeah, so you sounded fab, it was amazing. Yeah, I, I, like I was kind of on the same page as Rachel at first with The Last Jedi because, well, one, because I was so excited to just see what happened in the movie, you know, um, I'm sure it's very different from you, Christy, but when I'm first watching a movie, I don't really pay that much attention to the music. Like, that's not my main mm-hmm, focus, mm-hmm. even though Star Wars, you you are conscious of it because it's so great. Um, but I think because it was like the second movie in a trilogy and because so much of it was building on what had come before, it didn't strike me in the same way that the Force Awakens soundtrack had because a lot of it was like, oh, it's kind of a, a, a build on what we already have in a way. So. Exactly. And the Force Awakens introduced so many iconic themes. And it was our first time hearing Ray's theme. Like, can you remember the first time you were sitting in the theater for the Force Awakens and that Celeste starts playing? Da, 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 da. I mean, I got like full body chills. I was so ready. I, you know, I'd seen the trailers, you'd seen all this stuff, but like, this was our first introduction to these characters. And like, of course, now we love them like we love our family members. So it was, you know, it's a whole different thing with how hyped we were. And then The Last Jedi is much more, um, it's just happening on a much more different multi-dimensional layers and it's not quite as clear what, what's happening like musically with it. So that's why, um, it's it's really fun to sit and analyze it this way to get to those layers. Yeah, I think Ray's introduction has to be one of my favorite parts of Star Wars ever. That's just Me such too. a perfect moment with the combination of the music and the visuals. And you so quickly get a sense of what her character has been living through. Yeah, yeah. and with, with only one line of dialogue. Today, you, what you brought me is worth, you know, X amount of portions. I can't remember how many it is. You know, that's the only line in that whole scene. Until she yeah, it's not even... Yeah. Yeah, it's not even Ray speaking, but you yeah. still get such a strong sense of who she is. It's brilliant. That yearning. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. pretty fabulous. Right, so thank you very much for that. That was lovely. Fabulous. <laughs> so fun. <laughs> it really was. Um, and yeah, I think now, if we are ready, we can move on to the news and see how much we can get through of that. So the first thing that we have for the news is that The Last Jedi and its special features have been released on digital in the United States. And not the United Kingdom, I noticed. 
Sorry. I resent it deeply. Don't worry, I'm talking to like the great Disney god in the sky. Probably <laughs> Mickey Mouse. So, um, yeah, I, I'm not taken out on you, I promise. And I you've been very from... good and not watched any of it, right? That would be a lie if I did this. <laughs> uh, I, I've watched certain things, like I've seen all the deleted scenes. I've seen the first 10 minutes of the documentary. Completely well, that was... legally, because yeah. that was released on IMDb. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, and what else? Maybe some other brief things. But yeah, for the most part, I haven't watched it. Because yeah, I really do want to wait until I can just own it and see it properly. Um, so yeah, on that note, I think I should pass the discussion over to you guys. Because I'm, well, I know factually that Kirsty has it. <laughs> And I, I could say with like a 99.9% probability that Christy also has it. Um, so yeah, what has it been like to actually see the film again? Glorious high definition. It's magical. <laughs> it so is so magical. nice to just kind of... I mean, I've, I've watched all of the, the special features and the, the commentary and the now the music-only version. And there's so much. It's like prequels level stuff. And I think that's really great after what we got with the force awakens i know it was a bit better with that second release of the the 3d edition but it's so wonderful that they gave us so much yeah it's I, i've watched all of the deleted scenes and the music only version and i'm about a quarter of the way through of the with the commentary um and i did kind of spoil myself on tumblr a bit by reading people's reactions to it but um yeah i just i have it on all of the time like even if i'm doing something else i have it on in the background oh. and uh yeah, I basically like when I die, I want like a 4K TV in my in my tombstone, just playing the last Jedi forever, <laughs> like, just on repeat. So, That's <laughs> oh, amazing. Like, did you say you have kids, Christy? Yes, I've got two. Um, they're pretty young, and they haven't. They have like the little golden Star Wars books, and they have, you know, they look at the visual dictionary, and they're they're very tapped into it, but they've never watched it. So, I, this is all when they're in they're they're in bed, and they're not a. Uh, yeah, <laughs> they're not soaking up in their eyeballs just yet. Not yet, not yet. I'm gonna I'm gonna wait till my son is six. That's when I saw it, so I'm gonna wait till then. Yeah, I think that's a really good age. Yeah, I have a niece who's just turned six, and I hope to start working on her soon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it is awful. I make a son like a lab rat or something. But <laughs> I have tried in the past, only to realize that very young children, the attention span just does not exist. So yeah, it's like not gonna work. Oh my goodness. Um, I must say, this is jumping ahead a few bullet points, but seriously, I just was aghast, like both from like joy and horror when I first saw this line. I could not quite believe it was actually real. <laughs> and then I saw like footage of it and I was like, whoa, th that really is real. Man, that's not a joke. That's something that happened. And that is like a cut line from the film with Luke saying, you opened yourself to the dark side for a pair of pretty eyes. <laughs> oh my God. It's real. It's real. And it looks like if that had been kept, then that would have been like the last thing, like Luke said, before him and Ray started their like, little battle on the cliffside. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which is amazing. So it's basically like Luke said, you ho. <laughs> <laughs> he, yeah, he catches them during the hand touch scene. <laughs> which we've had further commentary on from Ryan this week, which we'll talk about soon. And then that's his reaction. <laughs> so <laughs> it's very on the nose. And um, yeah, I should probably apologize to Larissa on Twitter because she was at South by Southwest and she 
I think she was the first person to report this, like to our side of the fandom, like, oh, this is what Luke said. And I sent it to you, Rachel, and I was like, I don't know if I believe this. <laughs> yeah, no, that was the first I heard of it. And I looked at it and it was like, whoa, because I think when we first had that, there was no context. We thought it might have been something Mark said at the panel, right. like in yeah. a jokey way. We didn't realize it was actually a clip from the making of documentary. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, then there was pretty clear cut. It's obviously not like an outtake. It's something that was scripted that was then later removed. And I think Ryan Johnson, like on Twitter, he later said something to the effect of, oh, I fought long and hard about whether to keep this. Mm-hmm. And, like, I can understand why he might have included it because oh, it's the kind of thing... It's, it's hard to know. Well, I don't think I should talk about it... F- too extensively so obviously it's a cut line it's not part of the movie as it exists but I do think it's so interesting that Ryan even had that there and it got to the stage where it was filmed because that sort of line that seems to me to be this older guy like condemning this young woman for what he perceives as like a superficial lust perhaps Mm -hmm. you know like with that kind of comment he's basically attacking Ray because he thinks, oh, she's swooning because he's so pretty and handsome, <laughs> you know. And I think that it was good that it was removed because I think some people might have sided with Luke with that mm-hmm. sort of comment. Well, I think a lot of people have. We've talked before. We had an entire entire episode on Ray's heroine journey in the Last Jedi, and how a lot of that is about subtextually even a sexual awakening. And I think a lot of fans maybe more older fans or people who relate to Luke in the story um, see it almost as a cautionary tale that because Ben didn't turn back to the light when Ray went to try and save him and because she has this attraction and compassion for him, that was a mistake, you know, that yeah. she mm-hmm. she's learned from it now and that's why she shuts the doors. Yeah, it would have been like very, very on the nose of that condemnation and I think it would have actually been like a lesson to show that Luke was missing the point by perceiving it in that way because there was something so much deeper and more profound there. Like it ties into what we were saying in the music discussion because the force theme kicks in. It's clearly not Ray going all like gooey over him and going like, oh, Ben, you're so pretty. Yeah. (laughs) Although I'm not completely eliminating that from the dynamic between them. There's obviously some level of physical attraction because otherwise, why bother the shirtless scene and that kind of silliness. Um, but yeah, like that's not all that's going on. Like, and I think that Ryan didn't want to distract from that by having this kind of line, even though he wasn't siding with Luke in that moment. He was firmly on Ray's side. So yeah, it's just such an interesting line on so many levels. Yeah, I do wonder as well if it was cut in the end because it kind of unequivocally makes it about this romantic attraction or sexual attraction, whatever you want to describe it as, between Ray and Kylo. Because yeah. it, you can argue in the film, you can debate as to how subtle or overt it is. Um, because we'll go on to talk about it later, but like with what Ryan's saying, it's like everything's kind of suggested, but it's not explicit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Feels like they were very care- careful about it and they're still being careful about it, although other things are happening like it's you know they might have taken this line out but then they also on the main disney homepage on the oh my disney show they have kelly marie tran just like fully talking about raylo i mean like they're not trying to hide it in some ways but in other ways in the actual film it seemed like they were trying to keep it as subtext in a lot of ways and cutting this line fits into that yeah yeah definitely i think it was all about like keeping things subtle and not being too on the nose which 
I think it's partly to do with keeping it like artful and keeping yeah. it like universal in a way. And I think it's also about not being too prescriptive for the next filmmaker. Because yep. I don't think Ryan wanted to be like, this is the story we are telling. Because if it had been explicit in that way, then I do think there are more conditions already set down for the director of episode nine. And don't get me wrong, I absolutely think JJ will continue the relationship and build on it and let Raylo is go. Like, I think it's good that Ryan allowed JJ the freedom to take that relationship and do whatever he wants of it, rather than having a particular spin on it that JJ just needs to keep on running with, you know? Yep, yep. Um, yes, so just quickly, because... Yeah, I don't want to linger too long on this and we'll be having a full episode discussing all the special features and everything that's covered once I've actually been able to see them. <laughs> um, did any particular deleted scenes stand out for like good or bad reasons? Like, Did anyone have any favourites or ones where they're like, oh, I'm glad that wasn't in there? <laughs> I do not like the original opening. Do not want. Uh, no. much, pre- much prefer how they did it. Um, yes. And my absolute favorite is the caretakers when Ray is, you know, busts in and, and they're like, want her to wave her lightsaber around. I was dying. I love that. It's perfect. Yeah. Me too. They play the bagpipes and everything. <laughs> I know. It's so cute. I get the way they dance and like they're, you know, they're going to be having fish nun humping later because it's pillaging of a sort and I just, I can't handle it. <laughs> Yeah, I was actually surprised by that line from Luke. Doesn't he say, like, in a way? In a way. (laughs) Fish nuns, you guys. Oh, my goodness. There's another really nice scene with um, Finn and Rose after they leave the supremacy. And Rose asks, so where are we going? And Finn says, to where we belong. Which I thought was a really great rounding of his arc. Because that's obviously the point just after... The whole thing with DJ betrayal happened and he says, you're wrong. Um, I just felt like, and it was really short as well. So it kind of surprised me that it ended up being cut. Maybe it was down to pacing again. It's hard to know without it being kind of sandwiched between different scenes. But I felt like it was a really great rounding off of him figuring out that, that, yes, that is where he belongs. and, And it's also with Rose. So it adds another layer to their subtle romance as well. Yeah, I wish it would have been there too. Absolutely. And I think that's also a nice moment because um, they're like dressed or they were until recently dressed in their first order disguises. So I think that ties in well to, well, we're play acting it being this, but we actually belong with the resistance. Obviously, it's not like for a moment they're actually part of the first order again, but it's about escaping that and going back to the true cause because for them, the whole expedition to the first order was like a miserable failure in the first place and it should never have happened. <laughs> so, yeah. They really do need to go back to where they belong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my thoughts basically align with you, you guys. Like, I love the caretaker scene. That was easily the best scene. And I think it helped that it was one of the most polished. I think it was pretty clear that that sequence was removed quite late. Because, like, all the effects basically were done. Apart from Ray comically running across the shore. Like, yeah. um... Roadrunner. <laughs> yeah, that was really funny looking. <laughs> yeah. You could kind of like overlay like beep beep. It's <laughs> <laughs> kind of floating. Yeah. <laughs> like eh, close but not quite. Um yeah, so that was Uncanny Valley. But yeah, besides that, it's just a great scene and I loved what it added to the characters and their dynamic it felt really rich. And 
like I also love just that very, very, very brief series of shots where you see Kylo rating for Ray, just because. Mm-hmm. Like I completely understand why they would cut something like that out because, in a way, you want to keep the suspense of oh Ray's going to him, what's she going to find, and you kind of undercut that if you already show Kylo waiting attentively. Right. So yeah, it's a very logical cut, but my Raylo shipper heart regrets it. In that scene too, this is just one call back to the music, just real quick. Um, mm-hmm. The when when the smoke clears and she's in the pod and she looks up at him, something really cool that happens in the score is just the first note of his bad guy theme plays just the first one and it's in the same instrumentation of the, the horn plays it the same way and then it kind of falls apart and dissolves and you get sort of just a hint of the conflict theme when, and her face kind of changes you know that's another example of like the brilliance of and the understatedness of the score and i think that that moment wouldn't have been as impactful as if we'd seen him standing on the bridge waiting for her you know because like not only do you get this reveal of the smoke and how beautiful he looks but then also <laughs> yes. this this moment of, of like oh shit like what's I thought I was going to get a much different reception, you know, and like, but it doesn't develop into his bad guy theme. It just kind of hints at it. So that's another really cool moment. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. Yeah. Cause there's kind of this level of uncertainty, right? Especially as the stormtroopers are stood there and then they open those cuffs and you see the progression of rays, like uncertainty and, mm-hmm. Oh, is, is it, did I already make a mistake? Cause is, am I doing the right thing? And then the next time you see them, they're in the elevator and she's kind of doing that whole Luke and return the Jedi thing. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's really neat. Um, right, guys, are you ready to move on to the Ryan at South by Southwest part? Just because I mm-hmm. think we should keep this clipping. Mm-hmm. Uh, good. Um, so this is what Ryan Johnson was saying at South by Southwest. He was there to premiere his documentary, and then he was speaking at a panel afterwards. Um, so this was an, a question from the audience. Um, your film had a lot of screen time dedicated to hands touching, including that really sexy finger touch between Kylo and Ray. Is this intentional? And if so, what were you hoping to convey with these scenes? And then Ryan said, that's really observant. I guess the easy, dumb answer is just that you're always, especially with the scope of a movie like this, you're always trying to nail the intimacy. You're always trying to make it intimate, make it personal, make it just to this. There's always that tempting, big, huge version. And then I feel it's always more satisfying if you get a satisfying beat out of the intimate and the one-on-one and just Luke and his nephew and this moment between the two of them. Let's not go any bigger than that. It's about that. And maybe that's why the ultimate expression of that is just focusing in even tighter on just contact. And that's, to me, one of my favorite shots in the movie, just those two fingers touching. It's the closest thing we'll get to a sex scene in a Star Wars movie, probably. (laughs) And so Raylo fandom rejoiced. (laughs) Yeah, it was so nice to hear those words leave his mouth. I think he's been building up to that. It's kind of like baby steps. Because he kept on saying, intimacy, intimacy, intimacy. Yeah. And then like he worked himself up to, it's, it's like the thing that Julia Roberts says in Notting Hill. I can't say what she says because, yeah, no, he does say, but yeah, yeah he oh, yeah, kind of cuts the... himself off before, <laughs> before he gets to like the party bit because he's kind of like, oh, I can't actually go that far. And now he's like, nah, it's like a sex scene. Yeah. <laughs> I do wonder if some part of him has just kind of run out of patience with... <laughs> dancing around this um because it seemed pretty clear to me what the subtext of that scene was and i'm sure it did to you guys too but it obviously wasn't to everyone yeah and i can't relate to those people at all i'm sorry i 
I, I do think it in part goes back to the position you're approaching it from. So I think if you like see the film almost from a perspective that's aligned with Luke's, then you either don't really see that like sexual undertone or that intimacy, or you're kind of horrified by it, and you're like, mm-hmm. oh no! I actually saw a really interesting reaction from someone who said they're a parent, and they kind of see Ray almost as like their own daughter, and mm-hmm. therefore seeing her like have these kind of encounters with this like dangerous, like um dark young man, that's um like very disturbing because it's like, oh no, my baby, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and. Yeah, like I think that's a very interesting place to come at it from because I don't see it that way at all. I'm not a parent. And I don't think obviously being a parent means you have to see the, interpret the film in that way because evidently not, Christy <laughs> demonstrates that. Um, but yeah, I, I just think it's so interesting that some people could approach the film in that way, you know? Yeah. And, and I don't necessarily think that's a good or a bad thing because I do think the subjectivity of film is one of the greatest things about it the fact that we can all look at this single thing and get such different things from it but yeah seriously as someone who sees all that stuff there all the sexual undertone all the like romantic foreshadowing Mm -hmm. it's so wonderful to just see this being acknowledged and discussed openly it's like ah and I, i could see where that person is coming from i um i guess for me to when I, when I came out of, like, what I did on the opening night was, you know, I saw it with my friends. I ended up taking a vacation day the next day and seeing it two more times. <laughs> and, uh, every time I came out of it, I, even after, like, the third time I came out of it, and I had this very weird, uneasy feeling. And I realized that even though I'd been immersed in Raylo, and even though I'd been, you know, thinking about it on these mythological terms and the heroine's journey and everything, I still, I felt the uneasiness of, like, but he's so, but he's done these terrible, but, but he killed Han but I was even I was still having that feeling mm. and I and I had to really think about it for a while um and you know as, as I started to sink in and like just the way that they were setting up and the way that they were doing it and how masterful a piece of filmmaking it is that they took us from feeling one way about him at the beginning to feeling this completely other way at the end um and then then I was able to kind of get over that but like I I guess I can relate in a way because I did still feel like okay but in real life you know, we'd still be, we'd be upset. We'd be like, no, Ray, don't. But this, of course, is not real life in any way. And, you know, the lessons we can draw from it absolutely can be applied to real life and I think should be. And I think it's one of the greatest gifts that the movie gives us. But yeah, I guess I can, I can see that point of view. Yeah. Yeah. I think the fact that you have Luke positioned in the story saying these kind of things, even though some of them get cut and acting that way, like bursting in and telling her to leave afterwards it kind of shows that that is a valid viewpoint. It's just not the perspective of the protagonist. Yeah. So it's it's exactly. there in the story and it's supposed to be one lens, but it's not the only one. And ultimately, I don't think it's ever going to be like punishing Ray for her choices because Absolutely. she's the, the person that we're, we're following on her journey. So by the end of the story, you'll see why all of this stuff happened. Um, but yeah, it's it. I think it's totally valid that people share that perspective. I think it's just maybe we have to think about like who these stories are for. And while Star Wars is for everyone, ultimately, because it has that coming of age vibe for younger mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. and in Ray's, in Ray's context, probably more so young women. Um, yeah, it's probably just something for older fans to keep in mind. Yeah. yeah. 
I, I think it's kind of like if you think about the original trilogy, it would kind of be like the same thing as like taking the side of like Obi Wan and Yoda, like when they're in conflict with Luke over what he should do in relation to mm-hmm. Vader. Like, and that's reasonable because what they're saying makes sense. You can understand where they're coming from, but like as we're discussing with the Last Jedi, that's not the point. You're meant to see that they're not being malicious and that they're well intentioned but that is not the perspective that's the hero's perspective or the perspective that will ultimately shape the story that's kind of like the perspective that you need to defy and go against to find your own path through things mm-hmm. um, which is what luke did in relation to his father and it's what ray will one imagines do in relation to ben solo i think it maybe just becomes more complicated and difficult for some fans to like entertain that notion because obviously there is this like sexual element in the sequel trilogy that decidedly was not there in the original trilogy yep um and i think the idea of familial love i think it feels much less dangerous than the idea of sexual love so mm-hmm. yeah i think that that's why so many people are challenged by the whole Raylo thing but yeah i just find it all really fascinating absolutely me too Cool, I think that wraps that part up. So, if you please, Kirsty, could we move on to the next phase, which is the incredibly long quote about the mythological influences on Luke. Yeah, so Ryan had been asked, I think, I watched the whole panel, and I think a lot of it was ending up talking about Luke's role in the story and how his characterization had evolved since Return of the Jedi. And if you watch the director in the Jedi, a lot of that is concerned with how Mark and Ryan were kind of negotiating it and talking and Mark kind of coming into terms with what had changed about Luke. Um, So Ryan says, um, the expectation that this would be much closer to the Luke that was the hero of his hero's journey in the original trilogy. Whereas for me, this is 30 years later. And not only that, this is, if you look at any classic kind of hero's myth, that it actually is worth its salt. At the beginning of the hero's journey, like with King Arthur, he pulls the sword from the stone, he's ascendant, he has setbacks, but he unites all the kingdoms, he gets all his knights together. Or Beowulf, with him, you know, killing Grendel's mother and taking it all down and having the victory and getting his own hall. There's that arc, but then any one of these things, if you keep reading, and if it then goes past that and deals with the hero's life in Middle Age and beyond, it always starts to get into, you think about King Arthur as betrayed by his best friend, and his wife, and then ultimately, depending on which version you read, coming up against the product of someone has completely usurped his kingdom and the pr- product of incest from him, and he has to kill him, but only at the cost of his own life. And it gets into darker places, and Beowulf also. And there's a reason for that. It's because myths are not made to sell action figures. Myths are made to reflect the most difficult transitions that we go through in life. And that early part of the hero's journey reflects, I think, in my interpretation, going from adolescence into adulthood where you're ascendant and you're finding yourself and you're winning in order for something to address middle age and beyond in a really honest way if you look at the myths like the fisher king it deals with disillusionment it feels like you're starting to lose your place in the world it feels like everything changing and loss and that's because they're honest they have to be honest because that's what these things are there for and i feel like it would be a betrayal of them and of luke skywalker as a character to not take it seriously enough to reflect that i think And just to give us the waxworks version of Luke that we might love and expect because we have him up there as the action figure on the wall. If we want to take him seriously as a character, for me at least, it felt important to go into that realm. Mm. That's such a good quote. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. 
you can tell he's thought about this a lot. Yeah, exactly. Which is one of the things that makes me so annoyed when people act like Ryan just was so laissez-faire about the things he did in The Last yep. Jedi. Because yep. that clearly was not the case at all, as quotes like this exemplify. So he clearly invested so much thought and energy into it. And I think this quote is fabulous because it shows that he didn't give in to like his fanboyism, you know, which might have been easy for him to do because he clearly loves the property and has seen it since childhood. But he recognised that it can't just be about resurrecting Luke from the 70s, you know? You can't bring that Luke back without it just becoming some like silly parody. I kind of think of like the... um terminator series where you see like arnold schwarzenegger continuing to come back as the terminator (laughs) and it's just horrible at this point it's like they're constantly trying to resurrect that character but there's nothing new to say it's just like oh look it's arnold schwarzenegger as the terminator and he's just there as this like nostalgic token rather than because there's any actual worthwhile story to tell about that character you know and I think Ryan recognised that. And I like to think that when we're a few years down the line, people come to appreciate that more. And they think, okay, this is actually pretty cool because it is about continuing that story, not just bringing back the character like as if he's like on a carnival parade and just waving from a float. Yeah. You know, it actually interrogates the character and challenges him and gives him a narrative which i think lots of other stories wouldn't have he would have just shown up as like hey that's luke Woo! which would have been a mistake yeah and yeah. he wouldn't have been as important for to this story right in terms of ray's journey and kylo's journey if you look at how the force awakens starts things off it's very clear that this horrible tragedy has happened to the skywalker family so really if you just look at where they started it was never going to be sunshine and rainbows for luke he obviously didn't have everything together and wonderful yeah yeah, and I one of the, one of the things that I'm not I'm not trying to get up on a high horse and act like I have some deeper understanding of life than people who didn't enjoy, you know, Luke, the way Luke's journey was handled, but I feel like it's something that can only come with age and experience of failure and of um going going through something traumatic and and realizing that every single day you have to make choices that make you a better person and that kind of fix some of the things that you've done in your past if you can and if you can't how do you move on from that and I I read an essay pretty early after The Last Jedi by um, I don't know if you guys have read this it's by a writer called Zach Birchie it's called My Hero Luke Skywalker and it's you know he's a a, the target audience for the people who were kind of upset about Luke and he has this quote where he says Um, Here's what happens to Luke Skywalker, Mr. Hero's Journey, the self-insert for every spoiled child of the late 70s and 80s. It turns out he was traumatized by what happened in the original trilogy, which everyone should just nod along with because of course he was. He finds out that Space Hitler is his dad, then fights him to the death minutes before their personal reckoning changes political history for the entire galaxy. Everyone convinced he's the real thing, Jedi Master Luke Skywalker, but he's damaged goods. All that emotional violence ripped his brain apart. Can't say shit about it, though. People are counting on him. So he fails. His anxiety explodes, dragging him into the pit. And what's worse, his anxiety drags someone else in, someone who relied on him. The failure crushes what's left of him. And then Luke Skywalker surrenders to depression. And I don't know if you have to edit this off forever, just like you and I would. Well, that's the thing. It's so honest, isn't it? And it is. I'm not at Luke's point in my life. 
I'm I'm closer to Ray's age, but really, still, as someone who has struggled with depression and feels regret in some elements of my life, I find Luke very relatable at this point, and his journey throughout this movie is inspiring. Me too, and I'm I'm closer to well, maybe not closer. I'm maybe midway between them, but like I absolutely, even in my younger years, would find it relatable because of just you know the expectations that you have for yourself as a young person and what you think you're going to do and what you think you're going to be and how smart and wise you're going to be and how you're never going to make any mistakes, you know? I think the reaction to like Luke's character and his narrative in The Last Jedi, I think that almost tells us more about the kind of stories people want right now than it does anything about the film itself. Yes. Because I think there is something very truthful and painful about The Last Jedi and its depiction of Luke Skywalker precisely because it is so honest. And I think if people look hard into themselves, they really will be able to see themselves and aspects of their own experience in Luke and how he feels and how he responds to things. And I think a lot of people just don't want that. Mm -hmm. They don't want to be Mm -hmm. forced to look within themselves. And I think that's probably why it's so hard to see that because it does kind of force you to think about these dark things that you probably don't want or expect in your Star Wars films. And, like, again, I think that's perfectly reasonable to Mm -hmm. feel like that, to just want these films to be escapism and popcorn entertainment where you just sit down and suspend all your worries and, like, go to a galaxy far, far away and enjoy yourself for a few hours. But I think that that kind of view is ultimately short-sighted because I don't think films that just offer you that pure escapism, I don't think they last that long, you know? Like, I think there does need to be some element of catharsis and relief, which I definitely think The Last Jedi offers, but I think that's kind of meaningless unless there's, like, actual struggles and character drama that, like, are worth a damn, you know? Which is why a lot of these films were like, Oh, Mr. Fantastic, we all need to save the world from the evil swamp thing, <laughs> you know? Like, And that's kind of like this level of the drama. It's very surface level. It's all about power levels and defeating the evil bad thing that is coming at us from an alien world or something, you know? Like, those kinds of stories, they're fun, but ultimately I find them kind of meaningless. And it's been done so, so much that it's just, yeah, there's nothing left there for me to take from it but what the last jedi does it does offer something that feels very rich and very real on a very profound level and i think that's why it will last and why it feels like it matters and i think just the intensity of the reaction to the film good or bad i think that alone is testament to the fact that it was successful and it was the right choice because i think the worst thing that could have happened was just inertia or apathy and that's definitely not what's happened people are very intensely emotional in their responses to the movie and while that's sometimes very negative and like very distressed about what the film did i like to think that hopefully those people who do feel like betrayed or hurt by it they will ultimately think but wow did that make me feel deeply (laughs) even if it's on a negative level you know that stays with me that affected me in a way that mr fantastic destroys the spacemen did not (laughs) yeah yeah totally i was I saw something on Twitter the other day. Um, It was a 2006 interview about Brick from Ryan with the AV Club. And he was asked, as a filmmaker, do you feel you've done better if a movie divides people but has a passionate following or unites everyone into thinking it's pretty good? And he said, definitely the former, all night. 
And not that I get any distinct pleasure from displeasing people, not at all. If you make something interesting, inevitably not everybody is going to like it. So in a weird way, that's a very good sign to me. All of my favorite films are somebody else's least favorite films. I think that actually is a very good sign. So oh, that's all of this. Cool. <laughs> yeah, it feels so true to Ryan as an artist. And I really admire him for sticking by it and patiently explaining what he did. Like, it's not like people don't deserve to ask these questions as long as they're being civil about it, of course. But, yeah. but the fact that he can speak so eloquently about why he made these choices for Luke, he obviously put a lot of thought into it. He didn't just do it lightly. He believes in that as a tenet of good storytelling. And the other, the other thing I saw on Twitter about it was a guy who said that a, a, some of the people upset with what happened with Luke's journey are suffering from um, EU-itis, ex- expand, extended universe-itis, where they came to love the Luke of the novels that happened in between, you know, 1983 and, and the, the Force Awakens. And I've read all of those books. Like, I've told this story many times. People have heard it. I was sitting on the middle school playground with no coat on, trying to use the force to warm myself in the middle of winter oh. with a with a stack of dog-eared EU novels sitting next to me. Like, I was that person who, like, loved... Like, Luke has incredible stuff that he does in the what is now Legends canon and stuff. And, like, people, people take don't separate the movies from those books and what the original trilogy was with this kind of pulpiness, this fun, this sense of, um, you know, there's almost like some silly moments in there and they, they take umbrage with some of the humor in the last Jedi and they take umbrage with what happened with Luke because in their mind, he's this untouchable EU badass. So um, that's like another element to it where you have to kind of leave, you have to let that part of the past die a little bit and, and kind of go where they're, go where they're leading on this new direction of the story so yeah and I, I must say that hearing that quote from ryan it does actually make me feel really good it makes me think that i don't think he can be feeling that bad about the backlash to the last jedi because he clearly recognizes that kind of intensity of the response is like a hallmark of the fact that he's done the job that he sought to you know he clearly recognizes he made good art because it has provoked such intense reactions. Absolutely. So, yeah, I'm pleased for his sake. I'm sure he would prefer it if people would be less asshole-ish sometimes about how they express their dislike. But, yeah, I think he obviously understands what he's done and he doesn't regret it, which is good. Yeah. Okay, so the next news item is that the score for Solo is now being recorded, and I will read. About two and a half months ahead of the film's release, work on recording Solo, a Star Wars story score, has finally commenced. John Powell takes the reins of the orchestra. As the last couple of pickup shots for Solo are being completed, work is underway to score the second standalone Star Wars spin-off film. Both director Ron Howard and Powell have shared social media posts indicating that work on writing the music has been completed and that the soundtrack is all but ready to be recorded. At Abbey Road, John Williams finally created a theme for the character of Han for this movie, which Powell will orchestrate. This marks the first, and quite possibly only, time that Williams has contributed to a Star Wars soundtrack that he did not compose himself. And yeah, I think I'll pass the reins of this to you, Christy, because yeah, I'm sure you have more to say than we do. But yeah, how do you feel about this news and what do you think about Powell as a composer? I love him. 
I abs- when they announced that he was, you know, the next composer being brought in after uh, Michael Giacchino for Rogue One, I was absolutely thrilled. Um, he's kind of he op- occupies kind of an interesting place in the pantheon of A-list composers. He, you know, he's British. He comes from England. He comes from um, a background there. He came to LA like in the '90s, and Hans Zimmer, you know, hand selected him to come work for him, and that's he working at. It was called Remote Control then, or it was called Media Venture then it's called remote control now and he that's where he started you know cutting his teeth and getting his first features and he really made a name for himself on the born identity series of films where what a lot of people were doing at the time was you know big action orchestral score and that for the film the born identity they actually already had a score written and recorded by carter burwell who's another amazing composer but the director doug lyman or doug lehman i'm not sure he pronounced it he wanted to do something different and so Powell kind of played against type and did something very minimal and percussive and uh, it's kind of a a style of scoring that is very imitated now Um, it's the temp score for many projects including projects I've worked on so he created a really interesting sound but then you also hear him do projects like How to Train Your Dragon which he was Academy Award nominated for which is one of the most beautiful lush orchestral exciting action adventure family adventure viking influenced um it's just a beast of a score and he he has such range and he has such depth and another series he's worked on that I love the score for is the Kung Fu Panda series um <laughs> I've watched these films so many times because my kids love them and uh, it's just brilliant. He has a gift for melody. He has a gift for um, understanding narrative and drama. And uh, I just, I think that there couldn't be, uh, Giacchino was a pretty spot on perfect choice to bring into the family as well. But I'm so excited that Powell is the next person to be brought in. That's really cool. And are you excited um, for John Williams' Han Solo film? Yes, because another reason why this is very exciting is you know he didn't come in and do anything for rogue one like i i also share the head canon of many people that i'm hoping that the end of solo will be revealed to be han telling his adventures to young men solo like oh. i i don't know i don't think they'll actually go there but i think there's going to be like connections to ben and there's going to be things in there and the fact that they brought john williams in to to compose this this very own theme for han solo and for his early adventures to me there's a greater significance being placed on this film then perhaps was placed on rogue one and emotionally for the end of the skywalker saga and everything so um yeah and i i like i love the rogue one score rogue one itself as a film ranks pretty low on my list of star wars films because i really couldn't connect to it emotionally but mm. um yeah i'm just i, I have a feeling i'm going to connect a lot more emotionally to this one just because of ron howard as a filmmaker and the the people that they cast and the way the trailer looks i mean i'm out of my mind about the trailer so yeah that yeah. no, looks really really fun and did you say you like the score to Rogue One? I love it. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, no, so I, I love oh. Michael Giacchino. Like, um, have you heard his score to Jupiter Ascending? I actually haven't listened to that one. It's in my iTunes, but I haven't spent a lot of time with it. You really should. It's yeah. fabulous. Like, it's one of my favorite scores. It's just beautiful, beautiful orchestral music. Um, yeah, the, the, the film is crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, questionable. But I love it in all its questionableness. Um, yeah, I'm going to stop that digression because I often talk about Jupiter Ascending. Um, yeah, sorry, Kirsty, I sense you wanted to say something. Oh, well, I was just thinking, like, I I know that Rogue One was connected to the original trilogy, obviously, but it feels more like, even though it's being marketed as the standalone Star Wars story, Solo is kind of still part of the Skywalker saga, right? Yep. So yep. 
yeah, the fact that he is doing that theme and because, but yeah, we don't have a theme for Han yet. So I'm really interested to see what that's, that's going to be and like whether it will include influences from Leia or like if they're going to kind of foreshadow the fact that he's going to meet her or somehow bring something in that like has some element of Kylo Ren's theme or like how is it going to connect because at the end of the day these are all family members there's so many delicious possibilities it's just I absolutely cannot wait and I'm I'm happy that they made the directorial decisions that they made I'm happy that they changed the you know the direction that they were going in in every regard on episode nine as well as on solo so I just every every choice they've made so far I've been like yes good idea good idea let's keep going so (laughs) in Kathy Kennedy we trust yes exactly (laughs) right Christy needs to leave us sadly right now so you had such a great time talking to her and she's been so amazing um but yeah just before you go Christy um do you want to say where other people can find you Sure. I'm on Tumblr, enjoyallneednothing-blog. Again, I made this Tumblr so long ago that I don't even know how to change the name. I'm just sticking with it for now. <laughs> it's definitely unique. I like yeah. it. Yeah. And, and we'll link to your music matters as well with, when we when we post the episode because they're awesome. really great. and Everyone should read them. Yeah, and I'm I'm gonna make a post also with like um the article I quoted on about Luke and uh, the KOSC interview. So I'll make a post with that stuff too, kind of in an organized manner. Cool. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I just love and respect you both so much, and just really, uh, you're the highlight of my week to listen to your podcast. So it's such a thrill for me to have been here. Oh, thank you. That's so nice. (laughs) Yeah, we'll have to have you on again. Yeah, I'd love to. This is wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much. Awesome, thank you. Thank you. Right, so we said goodbye to Christy, and unfortunately that means it's also time for us to say goodbye. So, I am Rachel, and you can find me at Star Wars Nonsense on Tumblr and at Journal of the Star Wars on WordPress. Where can people find you, Kirsty? I'm Bastila Bay on Tumblr and Scavengers Horde on Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, bye! Bye!